how do we define the kingdom of God? What even is the kingdom of God? We should probably get a good definition of that down because Jesus is going to be talking about it a lot throughout the gospel. The kingdom of God is simply where God reigns, where what God wants to happen is happening all the time. And so Jesus is saying in his body right now, as he's saying this, this is the beginning of what God wants to happen in creation starting to happen. And he's announcing that it is now possible through him and him alone for other people to experience God's reign in their lives, for them to join in in that. It comes with the Spirit, and I kind of mentioned this last week, that, that though God has always been in charge, he's in charge much in the same way that I'm in charge at my home, where I leave room in my home, as me and Chelsea are both in charge, we leave room in our home for our kids to disobey us, for them to have freedom, for them to get hurt. But we make room to make those things well when they happen, to hold accountable when they make choices that go against what we want to happen. And God has always been in charge, but he has made provisions for parts of his creation to not do what he wants them to do. And he has left space for Satan to reign. And as he says three different times in the Gospel of John that Satan is the ruler of this world, that Satan has a level of power there. But he, he's saying, he has broken that power and made it possible now for what he wants to happen to happen in our lives as we receive his love. And so this is a really gen general, generic announcement. It feels lofty. You're like, okay, that's nice to the theologians and the seminarians, but get this on the ground. What would this mean for me to encounter such a grandiose announcement? And so this, what we're about to read now in the coming verses, is what happens when that real general announcement of God's kingdom being now available through Jesus is encountered by people, real people, on the ground. And so let's read. I'm, I'm more into that. Being Tell me what it means to me. What do you want me to do about it? Put that in terms that I can grasp. So let, he's going to do that in verses 16 through 20 as he calls his first disciples. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in their boat mending their nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the higher men and followed him. So I have a few points to make about this. I want to start with Jesus's gracious initiative, his call on the disciples' lives, and we can kind of experience what, he, what, we, what they experience too as he calls us. So his call is rooted in grace. It starts by saying Jesus is walking along and he saw his disciples. It says multiple times that before they even saw him, he saw them. It reminds me of in Genesis 16 when God has just started his grandiose uh, plan for restoring all creation. He's called Abraham and his wife Sarah, and he wants to give them children and give them a land, and through them and their children and their land, bless all people in all lands. But there was a slowness to that promise teasing out, if people that know their Bible well. And instead of giving Sarah a baby first, God gives a baby to Sarah's, Sarah's uh, maid, her slave, Hagar. And Sarah gets jealous and mistreats her and abuses her, and Hagar runs away. And she's a vulnerable woman, all alone and pregnant, and feels like no one's looking out for her, and she's all on her own. And when that happens, an angel of the Lord comes to her and encounters her, reminds her that she's not alone, that he is with her, and she 
praises him and says, wow, you are a God who sees me. And when we think of the call of God on our lives, that when the kingdom of God feels like a big thing, how could we ever be a part of it? On the ground, what that looks like is that God sees you. Every individual person, he sees and knows. And what beautiful, how beautiful is it when someone around you can see you, when you feel seen, when you feel known, when they're like, oh, that person grasped my pain. They thought of me when I wasn't around. They can grasp the complexity of my life and the tension I'm carrying, the frustrations I feel. They almost can speak it into words better than even I can. God is do Jesus does that on an even grander scale than that. He sees Simon, Andrew, and the son of, sons of Zebedee. He sees them before they even see him. And then he calls them. Now, when we think about calling, if you think about the ways those words are used, that we are called, even in the church, oftentimes calling is more seen as like a very specific uh, like career. We collapse the call of God into like what I should do with my life. What is my calling in this world? And make that all obsessed about basically my job. So my source of income needs to be highly in tune with God's call on my life. And that's almost all the times that that word is used. But in the Bible, the word calling is much more used to be called into relationship with God. It's a call into belonging with him. And the way that God's people have described themselves is simply being called because they are God's. They belong to him. And so it's less, much less about a specific and narrow road from my life, from my career and vocation, and much more about a calling to belong with God and to participate in what he's doing. And so it's much more general and not so much attached to how I get my money, what I'm going to major in in college, and what like, I'm supposed to do to fulfill my life. We think of calling and look within in terms of discovering ourselves, and then as we come to know who we are, actualizing what we've discovered about ourselves by going out into the world and becoming who we need to become. You can do anything you've set your mind to, said all of our teachers and parents. I don't know if they predicted recessions and pandemics and that kind of thing, but that might get in the way of that plan. But Jesus' call is possible for anyone, no matter their vocational state, their career, their education, you can immediately belong. But it is really narrow, and then it has all to do with Jesus. There isn't many different paths. The call is narrow and specific. As Jesus says, narrow is the way that leads to life. Enter through the narrow door, and that narrow door is him. He becomes the one that determines that. And so when we read, when we gather as a church and we read this, we remember that we are only in this room and belonging to the people of God because he has graciously called us. He sought us before we sought him. He saw us before we saw him. He knew us before we knew him. And from having the sense of security of being known and loved and seen, we then are drawn into relationship with him. People in the Bible that would dwell on the words being called and chosen, don't get caught up in 15th century questions like we do about what's that mean for those who aren't chosen? And how come they are called and I'm not called? And who does it mean to the called? And maybe that those people are called to go to, predestined to go to hell. That kind of, people are not consumed by that in biblical times. They're only thinking about the emphasis on God's grace that he would seek them out and invite them in. And so this creates in us a posture of reception that nothing we do in our life with God or our life in general comes from anything other than a gift from him. There's a humble sense of reception of anything that God is doing in, in us and around us that we are just remain open to humbly receive with gratitude. It's a spirit of gratitude, not entitlement, of receiving, not conquering and taking. 
And that spirit then transforms us to be a people that are content and open-handed and ready to walk with Jesus on the way. And so the emphasis, when the kingdom of God is announced, what does it mean for us initially? It's that God sees you, he knows you, he loves you, and he wants you. He has called you by his grace. So what is the nature of this call? What's he even calling them to? It says, the call of Jesus, verse 17, follow me and I will make you fish for people. They followed him, and again, they followed him. The emphasis is on following. Now, we sometimes want to name, okay, it is all grace, and therefore, since it's grace, we can't earn anything with Jesus. So therefore, since we can't earn anything, we don't want to put forth any effort or discipline, because then we might confuse that with earning, and so now, because it's about grace, it's just about passively receiving and not doing anything about it. That's a mistake for what God's grace usually involves. God's grace doesn't eliminate effort or purposefulness or discipline. It just eliminates a sense of our relationship with God being contingent upon how well we perform, how good we are, how much or how often we produce. That relationship is secure just because he wants us. This is about grace. Yet, that grace doesn't preclude us from putting forth effort and intentionality and, and purposefulness and discipline to follow. And so he's doing what normal rabbis would do. People that would want to be rabbis or that have become rabbis, Jewish rabbis, were teachers, and they would select people to follow them. But normally, they would select only the best and brightest. So you've got to think about early Jewish schooling, which, first of all, only involved boys, and they would have everyone would go to school for a certain amount of time, but then only the best could move on to go to the next level of school. And then from that pool, only the best and brightest could then go become and follow and actually follow around a rabbi and learn from them. But here, Jesus is selecting some hillbilly fishermen to join with him. And later on, he's going to choose tax collectors and zealots and people that haven't done anything to earn them. And that suddenly, by grace, he's chosen them to be worthy learners of him, not because of their status in life, not because of what they've achieved, not because of some potential of giftedness. They didn't take some spiritual gift test and he's identified they're going to be a teacher. They didn't present his resume. They just, he just saw them, and just because they're them, wants them to learn with him. And that grace, I wonder, is what captivates their hearts and says, sure, I'll come. I wouldn't think any rabbi want me to come learn, but if he wants me to come learn, I better take that seriously. And so then what is this following of discipleship? What does it mean to be a disciple? It is a sense of learning, of being a student, a pupil. And, and the discipler, the rabbi, is the teacher. They're submitting themselves to learn from him. But we in our culture, where information is so readily available, we have so much content at our fingertips, it's easy to be a passive learner. We can casually just take up a hobby of learning about any old subject, just consume it and become a person that just knows a lot about a lot of things just to know them because we enjoy to learn. But in the first century, when they call someone to learn and follow them, there is no sense of like passive learning. If you learn, you will then be able to teach. If you learn, it's a whole life learning. So they are calling, he's calling these disciples to be with him often enough that they start to become like him and eventually, as they take on his character and his mission and what he values and learn how he operates just from being with him all the time, they start to be able to do what he did. And so that's when he calls them then to fish for people. 
because that's what he's doing. He's fishing for people, and he's inviting them to join with him in his mission. And so this following and learning and being a student is more like becoming a practitioner. It's like the best word for our culture to describe it is like being an apprentice. Like if you're an apprentice as a plumber, you will follow around a plumber, learn all the ins and outs of plumbing. At the beginning, you're just going to watch, and that plumber shows you how to do it. Eventually, you'll do it, and he will watch you or he, she will watch you to make sure you know what you're doing. And then they will let, give you more and more freedom until they help you finally become a capable plumber and then send you off on your own. That's what Jesus is doing when he's graciously inviting them to follow, is that we then come alongside, we are with Jesus all the time. These disciples will follow him around. They will eat every meal with him. When they wake up, he will be there. Before they go to sleep, he will be there. And they will be with him all the time, consuming and learning. And as they learn, he will train them to become like them and eventually send them out to fish for people. And so they will participate in his mission. So let's talk about this fishing for people. Not a metaphor we would normally use today, because I don't know many of you all that are probably like core fishermen at the core. You know, that is what you do. I remember going on a vacation one time recently and seeing this little boy. He was about seven or eight fishing by himself at, on the fishing dock. And I asked him, he was uh, eating a sandwich. And I'm like, did you wash your hands before you ate that? Because I was picking his brain about his fish and stuff. He's telling me about his fish. He's baiting his hook and stuff. And then he's like suddenly eating a sandwich. I'm like, when you eating that sandwich? When you just picked up those worms and that fish. And he was like, I'm a fisherman. Like, yes, man. <laughs> indeed you are, brother. When you are eating your sandwich after touching those worms, you indeed are a fisherman. So he, I, we would not grasp what it looks like to fish for people, but oftentimes this is more in a sense of like evangelism. We are going to go find outsiders who don't know Jesus, and we're going to catch them. And that is true. There's a sense of a rabbi capturing their listener's imagination and, and captivating them and pulling them in. And that's what Jesus does. He does that with people. But this also pulls from metaphors in the Bible that talk about fishing for people in the sense of declaring an imminent judgment to come. Check this out from Jeremiah 16, uh, 16 and 17. It says, this is about uh, 600 years or so before Jesus. Uh, he's warning of judgment to come and hope to follow. He says, I am now sending for many fishermen, says the Lord, and they shall catch them. And afterward, I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the clefts of the rocks. For my eyes are on all their ways, and they are not hidden from my presence, nor is their iniquity concealed from my sight. And I will doubly repay their iniquity and their sin, because they have polluted my land with carcasses of their detestable idols and have filled my inheritance with their abominations. Goodness me, man. Suddenly, I don't know if I want to fish for people anymore. That sounds like pretty intense. But the fact is, even though what Jesus is after is good news, as I said last week, the enemy against the kingdom of God, the enemy against God's reign in this world are sin, Satan, and death. They are against everything that God is for. And when he is on his way to conquer those enemies, there is a judgment to come of a warning of what happens when we don't follow Jesus. And so Jesus is a, a watershed figure. That when you hear the good news, when you become aware of him, when he seeks you and you encounter him, it does force a decision. If you talk about being committed to love and to grace and to mercy and to, and to community, those values don't have that watershed kind of divisive moment. But when you actually cite the name of Jesus and that he is now king, that is in and of itself an announcement against all other would-be kings. And there is judgment embedded within that. That's not the only news. 
The gospel does not start with God hates sinners. The gospel is that God is now getting his people back and taking his creation back. And in doing so, he needs to separate the enemies of sin, Satan, and death from all the harm they've done to human beings. And in doing so, he preserves our freedom and desires us to indeed choose him. And that comes with a warning. And so as we are fishing for people, it comes not with a hatred. We're not doing this against people, but an announcement of all that Jesus wants from us that presumes a sense of like cost to the choice. And so we should be careful about how we do that. I'm not telling you to go out there and tell people they're going to hell or anything like that. But that when we announce Jesus, we should expect there is a sense of division. There is a challenge to that. And that's just, he carries that. You don't even have to add to it. You just share the good news and what Jesus wants from us and expects from us. And that comes with a sense of revelation of attachments that we have that we're slow to give up. And that revelation is the painful part of judgment of the kingdom. I just want to keep that there because we'll see many times along the way that people don't just run to Jesus, shockingly. He seems so good and everything we would want, but people don't just beat down the doors to run after him. And the reason is because it carries with us the spirit of firm challenge, which he's about to get to now for the disciples. Go to the next slide. Jesus becomes our immediate source of identity and security. So what happens? He sees them, he calls them, he invites them, he offers grace to them, he tells them God's reign is here now through them. And what do they do? They immediately leave their nets, and they immediately leave their father and the boats, and they come and follow. Just think about what it would mean for a first century fisherman to leave their nets. This is their wholesale identity. This, is the, this consumes their life. To be a fisherman in the first century, it would, your life would revolve around that. And because in that culture, it's not like us where we like, now you're 18, go conquer the world. What do you want to do with your life? You get the whole world at your fingertips and go select something that means something to you. It's like your dad and, his, and your grandfather, they were fishermen. That's what we do. We fish. We don't leave the village. We're not going out to do other big things. We're going to keep fishing because that's how we always provide for our family. And so there's a rooted sense of security, vocational security, that comes with being a, a, a fisherman. And they leave that. They leave their boats. They leave even their hired men, it says. So you have to imagine they might be somewhat successful uh, fishermen who are almost like the management class. And so they are leaving behind a source of long-term security, economic security and comfort in the first century. That's a big deal. Not a big social safety net to catch them when they fall, but they leave that behind. And so you have to imagine Jesus takes immediate priority and urgency over our, the kinds of sources of identity and security that we would find in our careers. And so you have to imagine that does not mean everybody needs to leave their career. Some might. But it, it would definitely mean that Jesus would take priority over how we think about our career. So it might mean that, let's say, you earn the same amount as people that are in your same level and Jesus does something different with your standard of living and your earnings than what your peers would do. It might mean that you pr privilege what Jesus wants of you as a whole person. And so instead of, of, of taking that promotion and doing, doing everything you can to fight for that highest promotion, you relinquish that, you cap that. You refuse to do more for your job if it's going to erode what else Jesus wants for you in his kingdom. If all of us are then forced to hold with our hands open 
how much we may squeeze and hold our careers to give us more than they're capable of giving. And so Jesus would demand and pursue immediate priority of that. And then second, leaving their father. So just as much as, our, as people's identity is often tied to their source of money and income, there are, our identity is also very much tied to our relationships, especially our family relationships. Even more so in the first century where there was a less sense of individualism and who you belong to as your family was a big deal. But even still today, think about how much who we are and our degree of fulfillment in life is attached to who we marry and what our kids are like and our relationships with our family and our sexuality and our marriages and that kind of thing. We idolize that and expect that to give us more than it actually can give us in terms of uh, identity fulfillment and, and, and total fulfillment. And so if you think like, man, this seems unfair that Jesus would expect us to give up our careers and the financial security we would get from them and our families. But if you think about how much prioritizing Jesus first makes those things better. Like it's in our best interest that he would want us to put those beneath Jesus and hold them loosely. I think about um, my son asked a lot of questions a lot and he one time, he would often say, Dad, do you love me a lot? I'm like, yeah. Do you love God more than me? I'm like, yes. And also, like trying to describe to him that like it's not God or, or Graham. It's like if I love God as much as I can, my love for Graham wins. And if I loved Graham more than I loved God, if I loved Graham and Jada more than I loved God, I would squeeze them too tightly and expect them more from them than they can give me. And I would actually probably be a worse dad. Matter of fact, I had, I've been to counseling for a year and a half or two years before I moved here because I had a tendency to squeeze my family too tightly and find more security in them than I could possibly get. Because ministry feels kind of scary. I can't always feel like I can trust that from everyone else. But I maybe can say, well, I'll get it from my wife and my kids then. But then I squeeze them too tightly and become a worse husband and dad. So actually, everybody wins. I win, and they win when I prioritize Jesus. Same with your career. If, you're, if you need more security and sense of identity from your job and your career than from Jesus, you will also be less good at your career. You obsess over it. You won't deal with conflict as well. You won't be able to make decisions with an open-handed posture knowing that you're okay to lose this because it's not everything to you. And we've worked with people like that. And you've seen how they are with their families. They're obsessed over, over how they are in their career. And so Jesus actually has our best interests in mind when he identifies in our lives good things that we're prone to squeeze too tightly to make great things. That's called idolatry, when we give something in the place of God. And to instead say, those things are frail. They can go away. Yes, your family is good, but they can die. You can lose them. Yes, your career is fine until there's a pandemic, an economic crisis, and maybe you don't have that anymore or all the things you loved about it changed. Then what? Can you hold it loosely, receive the gifts they are there, but not make them the end-all, be-all for your source of identity and security? But Jesus doesn't change. He's always there. You belong to him permanently, and no matter who you are with your family, that context of that Jeremiah quote that I just mentioned, it talks about Jeremiah being a celibate man and how God's calling him to that, which was even a bigger deal pre-Jesus, to not be attached to your family, and yet the call on Jeremiah's life was that. And so he's calling him not to find his identity and security in someone or something other than God, and I think we could all use that call now, that in our culture, we've ten the church has tended to hold too high 
the calling of our lives for vocation, and our nuclear families, our marriages to be an end-all source of security, leaving no compelling vision for singleness in the kingdom of God, leaving no compelling vision for a sense of community invited into our marriages instead of our nuclear family just being our little huddle that is insulated from the world. And I'm saying that as a challenge to myself to break open those homes and make room for the community to join in together. I got lots more to say about all that. But for now, just contemplate the sense in which Jesus calls us to open our hands around those gifts of our vocations and our families. And in doing so, we'll actually be better towards them. That he calls it an immediate priority. I love that. It's immediate. The call in their lives is that level of urgency that they are to do this now. And I think that is a challenge to us that that, his, that what Jesus wants is always top priority. And it's crazy to me that how both it's always now. The call of Jesus is today. You hear this message, you can respond to him today. And yet he seems to be patient and have all the time in the world for us as we lollygag around. It's a weird sense of both like demanding authoritative call that is moved now and like a sense of like, I'm patient and I will wait for you either way. There's both like an urgency and a patience that is hard to wrap our heads around. But these guys do it immediately. I, th- I went on a field trip this week with um, my daughter Jada. She begged me to go on a field trip, first field trip, first with the first graders. And I love her teacher had an outstanding quote that I need to like put on my kid's shoe rack on the drawer of their toothpaste and toothbrushes when she said, slow obedience is disobedience. And I'm like, yes. <laughs> I need to paint that on my kids' door frames. It should be the slogan when they get up and when they're about to go to sleep because I don't know how many times a day I have to say, I said to put your shoes on. I said to brush your teeth. But slow obedience? And they all knew it. She said, slow obedience. And Jada's like, is disobedience. I'm like, man, we need to put that on a cross-stitch pillow. Put that on a magnet for the fridge or something. But they have a sense of urgency where Jesus' call takes that level of priority in their lives that they're ready to drop their sources of security today. Now, our dropping may not be immediate and total, but there's a sense of letting go and saying, God, you got this process. To where the urgency is, I I, I choose a posture today of no longer squeezing my career, my family, or anything else that I would hold attachment to too tightly because I want to want to choose Jesus and let him, in his grace and power, work out what that call would look like in my life. He's not expecting immediate, total results, but expecting a sense of lifelong pursuit where he takes urgency and we put everything else beneath him for our best interests and thus for the world's best interests. This is what it looks like when the reign of God encounters a a person's life. And even if you follow Jesus for 30 years, 40 years, 20 years, 50 years, he still wants this from you today. And there's always room for us today to leave our nets and our boats and our fathers and mothers, our relationships, anything else we would squeeze too tightly and say we want to want Jesus instead. The question for us all is will we do what the disciples do? Open up our hands and say, yes, I will receive Jesus and all you have for me. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do want to want to open our hands up. We want to release what we are prone to attach to. We long to find our security and our identity in tangible things that we can see and feel and touch 
and that are immediate, that give us security now. But if we're in this room, we have some pull in us, some long to believe that you uh, are our everything, that you meet our deepest desires to belong, our deepest needs to, to pursue something bigger than us, and our deepest relational need to be one with you and with your people. I pray that you give us the strength and the courage to receive that call. To leave our hands open to everything else, to receive them as the gifts they are, but to receive you and most of all. We need you for that. In Jesus' name I pray.